presence of God transforms lives and heals hearts. Let's learn today truths on how we can access His presence and release heaven into our daily lives. Welcome to Manifest His Presence with your host, Dr. Candace Smithyman. Hello, this is Pastor Adam once again, and today we're going to you know, be looking at something that doesn't get much of, if any, attention when discussing the biblical narrative. We're going to be looking into the spiritual realm in a way that is not common. I, I think after you listen to this and research the scriptures through the lens of the original writers, you will be challenged to look at things differently than you had prior. And I think you're going to see some things you didn't know existed or maybe you just didn't understand prior. And I don't think this is a stretch, but since the beginning of man's creation, there has been a yearning to understand the spiritual realm. And as we begin to read the Bible, starting with the book of Genesis, we are introduced to this idea simply because that area where God resides and calls home is called the heavens. And I think what we tend to do is look at the sky, the sun, the moon, stars, and we process, process that that is the space that God inhibits. And I also think the original writers of the Bible, the Hebrews, thought the very same thing. And it's very important for us as we read the scriptures to place ourselves in the worldview of the writer, or else we risk not properly grasping what they are sharing for the reader to understand. We've, we've got to look through the lens of the biblical writers to get the correct understanding of scripture. I, I just cannot emphasize that enough. So when the biblical authors would look to the place where God resided, that, that vast sky, you know, when we go outside and just look up, it gave them a way to discuss and write about these spiritual beings. Now, as we get into reading the Word of God, we're going to notice the writers will refer to these spiritual beings as rulers and authorities, sons of God, morning stars, even the divine council. Now, from the very beginning, we are introduced to this group when God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars on the fourth day. Let me Let's read through this in Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. All right. So when we research the Hebrew words in, in this discourse right here, these just five verses, right off the bat, you'll see that the word rule, okay, the English word rule, that is the Hebrew word memshalah, and it means a ruler. It means dominion. It means governmental power to rule. This is where 
we will find that God created heavenly rulers that he gave dominion. And again, another way to look at this is God's giving stewardship. God gave delegated authority in the heavenly realm to these beings. Now, right there, that is a very large principle that has significant meaning and roots as we read about creation from the start. Also take note that they were referred to as, you know, called signs and seasons and days and years, which which it means that their power and status symbolizes and points to God's power and status since God, the creator, Yahweh, gave them delegated authority. But here's the big takeaway. These are actual spiritual creatures in a spiritual realm. God appoints them to rule over the day and night. In fact, much later in scripture, we see, for instance, in Psalm 19, how all the world is celebrating God's power and creativity when God created the world. I'd encourage you to go read Psalm 19. I'm not going to go through that right now, but that's just one reference I'm throwing in there. Now, you may know this, but I don't think many are. are. Are you aware that there are stories in the scriptures where God invites this group of spiritual beings that he created, these leaders, to participate in making decisions? Are you aware of that? It's as if God is having a staff meeting. I'd, I'd encourage you to read 1 Kings chapter 22, specifically verses 19 through 23. This is a time when we read through that, I, I, I think we miss it, but now that I'm bringing attention to this, this is where like the divine council helps decide how to bring down the corrupt Israelite king, Ahab. Okay, and yes, they work through a prophet. They work through a human. But read that now with this understanding, and I think some of our eyes are gonna be the scales are going to come off on this issue. Or how about this? Look in the book of Job. We're going to find that the sons of God had gathered. And, oh, they were having a, a meeting. And then this, the Satan shows up. I just want to encourage you to read that. That's the beginning of Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Or I'd encourage you to read Psalm 89, verses 5 through 7. This is a referencing a group of heavenly sons of God. Now, we're going to go through another psalm. This one is Psalm 82, and it's only eight verses long. And I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it. So Psalm 82, starting with verse 1. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly? and show partiality to the wicked. Selah. Now, Selah is a word, you know, Hebrew word. Not a, they're not, we're not totally clear on what that means, but many agree it just is like a pause. It's like a pause right there. So here we're continuing on now with verse three. He's talking to them. Yahweh is talking to these other gods. And he says, you're, you're supposed to be defending the poor and fatherless. You're to do justice to the afflicted and the needy. You're to deliver the poor and the needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, 
You are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Okay, that was Psalm uh, 82. And there's some things going on here that are just critical to grasp what this is really saying. This is saying that (laughs) Yahweh is having a meeting with lesser Yahwehs that he created. The Hebrew word that is used here for God is Elohim. And it occurs twice in the first verse. The first time it occurs, it's singular. It's the God. The second time, it's plural, talking to these other gods. All right, so I'm going to say it. The elephant in the room that we've got to bring up is we've been taught that if there are other gods, they are always considered idols instead of, and I'm not saying that's inaccurate, but I'm saying why can't they be called rebellious sons of God? We've also been taught that this is either referring to angels or to men, the leaders of Israel. What, what, what really goes on in the bigger picture and has gone on for so long is man has changed the translations to fit their narrative. And, and the, the thing is, why would we ever, ever want to change the word of God to make it convenient for our worldview so that we can understand it better? No. It's like we've got to save the Bible from itself. I mean, come on. No, folks, we've got to let the word of God speak as it is and accept what it says. But we've got to learn our Hebrew and the meanings, the real meanings of the original authors. And because so many translations have switched what the original version of the scriptures has said. And in this particular case, these lesser gods or lesser Elohim are somehow in a meeting with the most high God, the one and only most high Elohim. And by, you know, by me even suggesting this, it it possibly could be making you uncomfortable right now, mainly because of the depth of how we've been taught regarding the interpretation of scripture. You know, people could be... uh, this is one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to start a fire here to burn off the dross of some incorrect things and encourage you to do more research than maybe you have so far. This Psalm 82 is stating that this group of lesser gods were being scolded by the Most High God. And, and as we read through this Psalm, they reason, right, the reason that they're being disciplined is because they have been corrupt and abusive in their administration. They have abused their delegated authority and shown, you know, improper stewardship. And and they're improperly using their rulership of the nations on earth. And God's calling them out on their wrong actions. I think it's really, really valuable to dig into this misconception about these spiritual beings. And we've got to acknowledge that to understand the scriptures, understand the Bible better, we have got to filter it through the lens of the biblical writers. Now, I imagine there are some of you just like me who have realized there are many verses that just don't quite work with our traditions or, or, you know, or are considered, they're considered problem passages that, 
have either been filtered out or pushed off to the side as unimportant and never discussed by leaders in the church. I've, I've seen it happen. I've questioned people through my life about certain things. It's part of the reason that at, when I was a younger, I just, younger person, I didn't want, I didn't want to get involved in Christianity. And, and later in my life, in my late 30s, is when I, I went to Bible school and I started to research things and go, wow, just, this isn't at all what I've heard. And so through the years, as I've gotten more uh, scholarly and more, uh, done more research on the Hebrew, the Greek, and the Aramaic, and I've become more confident to obey God instead of being concerned what men are going to say about me, right? I mean, as I reread the Bible and reread the Bible and study the Bible and get my concordance out and understand what the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic mean, I don't have any problem saying I wrestled with some of the passages and verses that didn't seem to mesh up. But it, it, it equally became apparent to me that the Bible is like a puzzle or, you know, with different pieces or, the, or a mosaic, right, that has, you know, all these different threads and on the back of the mosaic, they're all fringed and loose and don't look good. But when you flip it over, all those little pieces pulled together properly, you have a beautiful picture, right? Or you could look at it as different sets of data that when viewed separately at times just don't make sense. But when you put them together, they make a beautiful picture. In other words, another way to look at this is you know, we can't see the picture up close, but when we step back, when we step back from things, a different picture emerges. And then we'll go, oh my, wow. I didn't see that before when we were so close to it. But, but also, as we're doing this, please, in the meantime, do not discard the individual pieces because they're essential. Because without them, we don't have the completed picture that the puzzle pieces do or the, the completed mosaic with all the different threads. But the meaning of all the pieces is only found in the completed picture. And putting all these pieces together is very challenging if we don't find out the meaning of the original writer, which further implies we have got to do some research on the meaning of the Hebrew word that this book was originally written in. Okay, so here's another group of scriptures with this theme of a divine council or a lesser Elohim with the most high Elohim. It's in Job chapter 38, starting with verse, it's just one through seven. And now if you know anything about the book of Job, it's nobody really knows who wrote it. It's got mystery around it. It's also considered to be the oldest book in the Bible. Is talking about Job, who lived in the land of Ur. Remember, that's where the Chaldeans and Ur, that's where Abraham is called out of in Genesis chapter 11. So this, this book goes, this time frame is, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's somewhere maybe between the beginning of the book of Genesis and chapter 11. I don't know. But, but here we are in this book of Job, chapter 38, and it's, after all of these three friends of supposed three friends of Job are telling him why all this happened to him. And then this other guy comes in and tells him. And then finally, Job just really lays it out and laments a lot to the Lord. And now in chapter 38, the Lord, Elohim, Yahweh, yud Hey vav Hey is gonna finally answer Job. And here we go. 
Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fashioned? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Ah, okay. So, this is saying when God is laying the foundation, God is telling Job that the sons of God were present and they were shouting for joy. Now, are these men? Are these angels? The ancient Jewish world, right? In this world, the term sons of God in the Hebrew is B'nai Elohim. And it's used, it's a term used to identify divine beings with higher level responsibilities or jurisdictions. Angel, right? The English word angel is the Hebrew word malach, which describes an important task, but lesser than a B'nai Elohim. The angel's assignment was something like delivering messages, okay? But in this scripture, the sons of God are referred to as morning stars. Now, the ancient people viewed the stars as living entities. Stars move, right? And were interpreted as being alive and therefore the shining glory of living beings. Ancient people and civilizations believed that divine beings lived far away from humans in remote places where human habitation was not possible, which would be the skies and the heavens. So before the foundations of the earth, God has company. He's, there's these other divine beings referred to as, in this scripture, the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim. Now, most discussion of what's around before creation omit the members of the heavenly host. And I think that's extremely unfortunate because God and the sons of God, the divine family, are the first pieces of this puzzle, the first pieces of this mosaic. And furthermore, this reveals that we're talking about a family. God has an unseen family. God created a group of unseen, non-human divine beings whose dominion is in an unseen realm. At least through our eyes, it's unseen. But here's the deal. Since God created them, he claims them as his children. Just like we claim our children because we played a part in creating them. So, mm, a question always arises of why would God, the creator of everything, you know, why would he even need a council? Why does he need a staff? Why does, I mean, he doesn't need any help, right? He can do whatever he wants. Well, this is something to really, you just got to accept. It's obvious. It's obvious that God does not need any help. So therefore, we must accept that the God of the Bible wants to share authority, wants to give delegated authority to his kids. 
I mean, remember that Yeshua, Jesus, is ascending, right? After he's crucified, buried, and resurrected, he's ascending. And he tells the disciples, I have all authority and I give it to you. I delegate it to you. And your assignment is to teach the world all the things I taught you. So go forth and shine your light. So here we go again. He's telling his human creation now. He goes, right? He sets out and from the outset, he shares his rule with humans. But see, God first did this with his spiritual created beings in a parallel realm. And this realm, these realm, the the spiritual realm and the earthly realm, they actually intersected in the Garden of Eden when humans were created. But then it all fell apart in a rebellion in the Garden of Eden. And notice that there was an equal rebellion in each realm. We've got the human realm who made the choice to rule on earth in their own terms after getting kicked out of Eden, right? They built their own nation using their definitions of good and evil. And it's revealed for us in scripture through the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. I mean, some other things happen in there with Noah and all this, but but I'm just, just, I hope you can understand that. And take note that some of the biblical writers like Moses and Isaiah, when they talk about the origins of Babylon, they saw more than just a human rebellion there. They also see a spiritual rebellion. Now, let me just summarize what was going on then. We found that there were members of this spiritual divine council who, just like human beings, did not want to represent God's authority anymore, and they wanted to be God, so they rebelled. We see this playing out in Genesis chapter 3, right? With the, the, this mysterious being called the serpent, the nakash in the Hebrew, And beyond, in these created spiritual beings, they're deceiving humans into worshiping them them instead of the creator, Yahweh, Elohim, the Elohim, God. And, And throughout the biblical narrative, right, Babylon becomes the image for the combined human and spiritual rebellion. It's referenced numerous times throughout scripture all the way to the last book, Revelation. And remember how God dealt with the humans at the Tower of Babylon. He dispersed them, confused their language so they couldn't communicate to each other because they were on the wrong path. And he had a group with them. He's saying, hey, look what they're doing. We're going to have to do this to them, meaning to humans. But God had a group. He said, we're going to have to do this. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses touches on this incident and hints that this is when God also scattered the rebels of the divine council. Numerous times, folks, we read about these other gods that the Hebrews are warned not to serve. These other gods, which, the, which they and their fathers don't know, but they are, they're all scattered throughout the world, these divine uh, other gods, right? What is happening is all the nations of the world have these spiritual rulers, these other lesser gods ruling over them, and God is constantly warning the Hebrews not to follow them, not to allow neighboring people groups to entice the Hebrews to associate with them and these other gods that these other people groups are worshiping. What, what we have in the, in the Bible, in the scriptures, is 
we'll see prophet after prophet talking about these violent nations all around them. And these prophets are always talking about this in two dimensions, or they're making references to this chaos and injustice by noting these human rebels are being corrupted by the worship of these idols or spiritual rebels. These false gods of of money, of sex, of power. We all are, me and Candace have talked about this for over 15 years. We talked about each of us, our souls are looking for provision, protection, and acceptance. We're constantly looking for that. It's all provided spiritually when we bow down and and receive the Holy Spirit. We're a new creation in Christ now, a spiritual creation. We have everything we need spiritually, but our soul, soul is stuck in this realm of, of wanting provision, protection, and acceptance. Money, sex, and power. Just look at the world today. Is there any difference than what was going on during the times of these biblical writers thousands of years ago? Still going on today, isn't it? I mean, a very good example in the, in, in the Bible is the book, in the book of Exodus. If you listen to the teaching I did a while back about, you know, don't doubt God, and it was about the plagues of Egypt, that's a good example of what I'm talking about right now, right? The Egyptians worshiped all these other gods, and Pharaoh, right, is the best live version of, they said he was a god on earth, right? And it was the worship of these Egyptian gods that the Hebrew god, Yahweh, right, Elohim, the Elohim, he says, I'm going to come to, I'll do battle, and I'm going to humiliate these puny gods that the Egyptians follow on their home turf. And remember how after rescuing them from this slavery and bondage in Egypt by these other gods, right, the Hebrews god, Yahweh, invites them to join with him and make this covenant and learn a different way to live and rule in this world. And they agree, right? But unfortunately, they don't honor their agreement and violate their end of the bargain, of their end of the covenant. Once again, the humans give their allegiance to other gods and commit adultery. Hello? Hello? Do we do that today? Hello? Come on. These are things we got to stop. We've got to repent of this. So what's going on in the biblical narrative now? A few centuries pass after they get out of Egypt. God is showing his grace to see if they will repent and turn from their wicked worship of these other gods that they've been warned not to do, but they still do it. So what does God do? He says, the only way to get your attention again is I'm going to have to exile you to where? Babylon, where they become slaves again to a foreign nation and they're that those nations, you know, spiritual rulers, once again, will need, they got to be rescued. They'll need a new exodus back to freedom, and it comes after 70 years of being in Babylon. Now, that's, you know, soon after that, there's no more hearing from God. So about 100 years later, there's just nothing more. We're in about the 4th, 5th century BC now, 4th century BC. And then, All of a sudden, what happens? We get the beginning of the story of the Messiah, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who said he came to rescue the world and take it back from these spiritual and human rebels. Think about when Jesus is entering Jerusalem for Passover. He's there to confront and overcome all rebel powers and authorities. And he accomplishes that by how? Being the Passover lamb. Giving up his life. 
Jesus, see, Jesus condemned all the evil done by humanity, past, present, and future, by allowing those rebels in his time to unleash all their hate and evil on him. And he overcame it by the power of his love and the power of his resurrection. And like we shared earlier, Jesus tells his followers that all authority in heaven on earth now belongs to him. And Jesus delegates that authority to his followers and instructs them to start inviting everyone to give their allegiance to him, the risen Savior, which will bring freedom and the correct way to be human, to be, to be the proper child of the Most High God, the Most High Elohim. But don't forget that these rebel powers were not destroyed, they were just defeated. And so they're still around causing problems to this very moment. Remember, the real enemy to humans is not another human, but rather the spiritual powers that fuel our cultural idols that inspire hatred, division, and violence. In other words, when we see people hurting, other people, you know, you see people hurting other people in the background, is there's a divine counsel gone rogue. And the way we're supposed to deal with this and resist it is to put on the characteristics of Jesus by putting on our spiritual armor. And the weapon we are to use is the word of God. We are to proclaim the good news of the biblical story that Jesus has overcome all rebels with the divine power of his life and love. Oh boy. Well, I'm gonna end this now for today. And I hope, I hope this has struck a chord. I'm also, I, I really am praying that this will make you uncomfortable and get you to get into the word of God and, and research some things. And I think that is really a time when we get uncomfortable that there's a growth opportunity. So I'm gonna close this in prayer right now. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your direction. I thank you that your guidance and, and love and word is available for us, Father. I pray, Lord, and ask for your help in our understanding and gaining more wisdom of the big picture of, of what it is you've done for us and how much you care for us and how you've given us delegated authority to live victorious today. We thank you, Father God, for this and so much more. And we ask these things in the mighty and the matchless name of your great son, the one and only, Yahshua Yamashiach, Jesus the Messiah, amen. Thank you for joining Dr. Candice for today's podcast. For more resources and weekly prophetic words direct in your email box, go to our website at www.candicesmithyman.com, Facebook at Candice Smithyman, or Instagram at Candice Smithyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps the show reach more people and spread the gospel. Thank you.